Welcome to When We Talk About Animals, a Yale University podcast devoted to exploring the big questions animals raise about what it means to be human. I'm Viveka Morris. And I'm Lindsay Stern. In the spring of 1963, when our guest, Dr. Thomas Seeley, was not quite 11 years old, he lived, as he still does today, in a little wooded stream valley called Ellis Hollow, which is just east of Ithaca, New York. Dr. Seeley writes in his new book, It is here I first observed a magnificent pileated woodpecker chiseling into a tree for carpenter ants, first watched a steely-eyed snapping turtle laying eggs deep in moist soil, and first showed my pet raccoon how to hunt for crayfish under rocks in little streams. One day, back in early June 1963, I was walking along Ellis Hollow Road when I heard a loud buzzing sound and saw a bread truck-sized cloud of honeybees circling the ancient black walnut tree that stands beside the road about 100 meters east of my family's house. From a distance, Dr. Seeley watched as the swarm of bees took up residence in a cavity in the tree. Why, he wondered, did the bees choose that particular tree cavity for their home? Humans have lived with bees for our entire existence as a species, but the vast majority of our studies have focused on bees in managed colonies, whether the clay cylinders people used to keep bees in the Iron Age or the white boxes of modern apiaries. But here, in the black walnut tree, were wild bees, living without human supervision or human understanding. How wild bees lived was a great mystery. Dr. Seeley writes, I visited the bee tree often that summer and gradually overcame my fear of the bees, eventually learning that I could watch them close up while perched atop a stepladder without being stung. It was a time of wonder. Watching that swarm take up residence in that tree on that day is the spark that ignited my long-standing passion to understand how honeybees live in the wild. That 11-year-old in Ithaca, New York, grew to become today the world's leading authority on honeybees and a magnificently gifted writer about their worlds. For over four decades, Dr. Thomas Seeley has led research on honeybees' behavior, social life, and ecology. The science, natural history, and the important stories behind how honeybees live in the wild is the topic of his new book, The Lives of Bees, The Untold Story of the Honeybee in the Wild. Dr. Seeley is the Horace White Professor in Biology at Cornell University and the author of four other books on honeybees. Ant-Man E.O. Wilson, who Dr. Seeley studied under in graduate school, has said that honeybees are, quote, humanity's greatest friend among insects. Surely, Dr. Thomas Seeley is one of the honeybees' greatest friends among people. We're delighted to speak with him today about the wild honeybees. Dr. Seeley, welcome to When We Talk About Animals. My pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. As a biologist, how did you become intrigued by the puzzle of how honeybees live in the wild? That we, we talked about in the introduction you know, how you first became interested in, in them as a kid, but what drew you to them again once you were training as a scientist? Two things. One was the sheer high level of cooperation they have. When you look inside a bee colony, everybody's 
getting along, working together, and they do everything. So they're so beautifully social in the building their nests, collecting their food, keeping the place warm and defended and so forth. Um, and the others, in addition to that, uh, they are also very and amenable to scientific investigation. They will live behind glass. They don't m mind having some light on their combs. So a biologist can eavesdrop on their lives very directly and, and easily in a way that's hard to do with, say, the social wasps or the most of the ants uh, and the termites, for sure. So they're very. it's a nice combination of very rich social behavior with accessibility to investigation. You explore this at length in the book, but how generally are the wild honeybees different in terms of their daily rhythms than the bees living in the apiaries managed by beekeepers? Yeah, the, the, probably the f most basic and fundamental difference is that the colonies that are managed, kept by beekeepers, are managed so that the colonies will produce lots of honey. In fact, much more honey than the, than the colony will ever need. And along the way, the beekeepers try to inhibit the colonies from reproducing. That's a process of swarming and making the drones. In the wild, of course, natural selection has favored colonies that not only survive well, so the colonies in the wild store up some honey, maybe 30 pounds, but not 150 pounds, and the colonies in the wild are also um, living in ways that en enable them to do succeed at reproduction, producing these swarms and the drones. So the bees in the wild, they, they have a better balance between uh, investment in survival and investment in reproduction than the managed colonies. Who are these bees in the wild? The, the, the book is really interesting, and as, as is your life story in many ways, which are very intertwined, in that you've focused very specifically on this, a lot of your studies have, on um, of the forest around Ithaca and the bee populations there. And then you've learned a tremendous amount over the years there with your colleagues and students researching these populations. But who are the wild bees there and where, where did they come from? These wild bees are all members of the species Apis mellifera. They are native to Europe and uh, they were introduced starting in the 1600s. Um, first brought into Virginia, then Massachusetts, then Delaware. And from there, the bees basically took uh, expanded all on their own. They Some of the colonies swarmed from the beekeepers' hives. Those swarms moved out into the woods. And within a hundred years of their introduction, they were they were out to the Mississippi River. So they had they had shot out ahead of the uh, the, the European settlers. And uh, so these these are these are um, bees that are native to to Europe, especially northern and western Europe. And so they were uh, they found a very similar climate in in North America when they were introduced. Mm. And how abundant are these wild colonies today? They are. They continue to be abundant in the area where I work, um, out in a forest outside of uh, Ithaca, New York. It's two point five wild colonies per square mile, that or one per square kilometer. I haven't measured it um, anywhere else except that a colleague of mine measured it in another forest here in central New York, and he got the same density. So I think that's that's 
that's a good indication of the density, two and a half per square mile for the region of center, uh, central New York, maybe higher as you go farther south. You write in the book, too, about how ancient bees are compared to modern humans and how the pleasure we experience from eating honey is a pleasure that we share with our oldest ancestors, many of whom weren't even human. And I found it fascinating. I'd never thought about how the insights gained from entomology and specifically from bee entomology could help us understand early hominids. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit to that. Yes, I think that's a that's what you've uh, mentioned. There is is very important to understanding our relationship with honeybees. The honeybee, the genus Apis, evolved uh, at least thirty million years ago. That's back in the Miocene. We humans, we've only been here about three hundred thousand years, um, and so just as you said, whenever for as long as we humans have been on this planet and uh, and our ancestors have been here, there have been honeybees, and just and all of the, all of the um, major primates, the, the uh, chimpanzees, the gorillas, the orangutans—they all like honey. So I'm sure our pre-human ancestors were out honey hunting um, long before there were even humans. And so humans have been doing it ever since humans were humans, and uh, and that has been. Uh, an important part of our relationship, and we see it still today, only we don't so much hunt for honey, but we do manage colonies for honey. We've always had sweet tooths. Mm-hmm. And we've got cave paintings from thousands of years ago, right, where humans are digging their hands in, in hives. Yes, and those cave paintings are very telling to me because uh, in those paintings you see the very dangerous acts that people had to do, climbing these vines or going up in trees, things like that, to get to this honey. And um, some of them you see people falling off even. So it's it really, the paintings themselves indicate just how desirable, important this honey has been for to people for the last, um, those paintings date to about 8,000 years ago, so for many thousands of years. Yeah, that's one of the amazing things about this book, because it's not just an extremely thorough review of the science of how honeybees have been domesticated or somewhat domesticated by by humans and how they live in the wild. But it's also really a natural history of how humans have used bees for this way as well, both in managed hives of various sorts that have transformed over time. But there's also a really fascinating section of the book in terms of wild bees of of tree beekeeping, which I hadn't heard of previously in deciduous forests across northeastern Europe and Russia. Can you explain to us what the tree beekeeping was and, and how important it was in these areas? Yes, tree beekeeping was uh, was the form of beekeeping for all of those that vast forest area that stretches from what today would be eastern deciduous forest stretches from eastern Germany uh, all the way over to, uh, to the Ural Mountains. Yeah, so across. Uh, uh, Western Russia, and there were millions of colonies in that vast forest land, and we have records going back to the 1400s, um, and uh, indicating the scope of this tree beekeeping. Tree beekeeping was a form of beekeeping where people didn't put bees in hives; instead, they hollowed out cavities in trees in a form that the bees liked. But left, but they also built a door so they could get into these hives once a year in the fall. And they would take out a portion of the honey. Now, it was incredible um, 
work to do because they would build these hives high up in the trees. Now, you wonder, why did they go so high? It was because bears um, are a real problem for bees. And by by building these cavities in the trees for the bees 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 feet off the ground, they would reduce the chance that bears would discover them. And um, that whole industry... um, uh, was the cash crop for uh, uh, that uh, that time period in what is now Russia and Eastern Europe, it, and the cash came from the primarily from the wax. The wax was very important for the Catholic Church producing the candles. The honey itself was uh, more perishable, especially after it had been handled by people, and but that was converted into meat, so it was highly desirable as well. Hmm. So many of of our listeners have probably heard about colony collapse, the death of bees in large numbers that's been popping up in the news over the past several years. And in the book, you point out that wild bees seem curiously exempt from this phenomenon. Is that right? And can you tell us a little bit about why? Yeah, the colony collapse phenomenon is a is 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 well named the colonies do virtually collapse and the cause of that collapse uh, the population collapses is uh, the spread of viruses uh, in colonies and these viruses are spread widely by an introduced parasitic mite that uh, passes body fluids from one bee to another bee um, so yes that's a that is the number one beekeeping problem today is keeping colonies alive in face of this mite, which is spreading um, a particularly uh, nasty strain or strains of viruses. Now, the, uh, the wild colonies are, are not suffering from that as much. And the reason is that they went through a time when the mite reached North America, and it spread through all of the colonies, including the colonies out in the woods. And when it did that, it killed off approximately 90% of the of the wild colonies. But it left, of course, the 10% that had means of resistance to the parasitic mite and thus to the spread of the virus. And so today, and that, that happened sometime between... Uh, the early 1990s and the early 2000s that there was this um, massive die-off. And uh, so now the bees are, the bees are in the wild show much more resistance. And we can talk more about the mechanisms of that resistance. But the bottom line is that they have good resistance and thus they're able to persist all on their own. And by the way, you might wonder, well, how do, how do you know, Tom, that there was this massive die-off? Um, it's it's indicated by the loss of their genetic diversity and their mitochondrial DNA. Um, most of the colonies in the wild are, are now the um, daughters and granddaughters of, of, of only about 10% of the queens that used to be uh, in the forests uh, around here in the early, before the 1990s. That's extraordinary. Um, I'm wondering if you can tell us some about your methods for which you go into in the book, which are really ingenious and creative in all sorts of ways in terms of how one goes about studying these wild bee populations. And, and you talk about in the book, to, to talk about the, the parasitic mite, how you first encountered this mite in your managed bee colonies in 1994 when you came across this chilling scene of shriveled worker bees. And you thought at first that 
likely that the wild bees were dying out as well from this because while you could spray your colonies with miticides and so forth, of course, no one was spraying the wild bee colonies with miticides. And then you decided to embark on a bee hunting survey of the area of forest near Cornell where you had done a survey previously in the 1970s. And can you tell us, how does one do a bee hunting survey and what did you find? Great question. Um, you, I can survey the colonies in a forest by employing the, um, the techniques of an old sport called or pastime called bee hunting. And one of your previous books is about bee hunting, which is terrific. Too. Thank you. It's a great, it's a great um, pastime as well as a very useful scientific tool. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, it basically involves going to a patch of flowers, finding a worker honeybee that's diligently collecting nectar or pollen, introducing her to a, a small uh, bit of natural comb of the bees that you've loaded with sugar syrup, thick, thick sugar solution. The bee, um, once introduced to it, uh, likes it very much, goes home, um, tells her sisters about it. They, they come out uh, following the inf- instructions she provides. And then they eventually, after maybe a half an hour or an hour, you have a, a pretty good traffic of bees leaving your little feeding station and their home. And with um, skill and diligence, you can actually work your way back down that, that bee line to their nest. It takes me on average about a day, a day and a half to, to start in a clearing and work my way deep into the woods, wherever that bee tree is. But I, I did that, and, it, um, and just as you said, and to my amazement, I found the same density of colonies in this Arnott forest, research forest, um, in 2000 and two as I did in 1978. And, and 1978, there was no Varroa. In 2002, Varroa had been there about 10 years. So, and that, was, that amazed me. Hmm. How exactly do the bees provide this information to each other about potential foraging sites? They do that by performing a, a little, it's called a dance inside the hive. And the, it involves a behavior where a bee is She's moving across a vertical comb, and she's waggling her abdomen back and forth, and that makes her, even in the dark, it makes her conspicuous to the other bees. And she will indicate the direction and the distance to the food source. The direction is indicated by her body orientation uh, when she's doing that waggling motion. And the rule of thumb for the bees is that if the bee is walking upward while she's waggling her body back and forth, that means the target is in the direction of the sun, whether it's the direction or the sun's in the east or the west or the south, whatever. It means it's just fly towards the sun. If she's flying, if she's walking straight down, it means the target is opposite the direction of the sun. And each of those waggling motions, we call them waggle runs, lasts for a very specific duration. And that duration encodes the information about distance. So duration translate bees translate dura- waggle durations into distance. So just like us, if you know what direction to go and how far to go, you can find you can find a destination. And that's what the bees do. It's actually quite remarkable. Yeah, it's it's so fascinating to think of that as a kind of natural code. And so when you're looking at a bee. There's a um, fascinating passage in the book where you describe this kind of stage you construct, a kind of chamber, you can correct me, but where the bee can perform the dancing, you can observe it with more nuance. Yes. How do you, how do you construct that without 
impacting the dance itself? Basically, you, what I do is I make sure that the colony's not disturbed in any other way other than that they're dancing um, on a comb inside a glass-walled observation hive. And they're quite tolerant of that, surprisingly so, because there's much more light in one of these observation hives than there is in a natural nest. But that's the way it is. And when you use this bee hunting technique to find these hives, or if you use one of your other methods, all of which are really creative scientifically and otherwise, you have a, a wonderful passage in the book about how you and a colleague wanted to find trees with, with nest cavities. So you put out an ad in the local Ithaca <laughs> newspaper um, for bee trees wanted will pay $15 or 15 pounds of honey for trees housing live colonies of bees. And you were swamped a few days later with 36 different bee trees, all of them close by. Um, and so whether regardless of the method, method by which you find these trees, what are these nests like when you find them? And then how do they compare to um, you know, the typical modern managed colony today? Yeah, that's a very important question. I'm glad you asked that. These nests that are out in the trees, they are um, uh, much smaller than the uh, the nests that of colonies that are living in beekeepers' hives. Now, both in a hive and in a tree, the nest has a vertical orientation. They build these combs, a series of like curtains of comb that run parallel to each other, and they fill the space. And they put the honey in the top, and they rear their the young bees, the brood below, and the entrance is usually near the bottom. Now, there are a couple of Large differences, however, between the nests or homes of the bees in the wild versus those in beekeepers' hives. One I've already mentioned, the size. The beekeepers, in a sense, supersize their colonies by giving them these, putting them in hives that um, contain three to four to sometimes five times as much space as, as a nest does in the wild. And the reason they do that is they want to give the bees lots and lots of space in which to store honey, to build huge honey reserves. So that's good for the beekeeper, but it means life's a little harder for the bees. They've got a bigger bigger nest. They've got um, uh, a larger colony, and a, the larger the colony, the larger the brood nest, etc., the more um, rich a host it is for pathogens and parasites. So these supersized colonies of beekeepers are just absolute wonderful um, hosts for the bees, pathogens, and parasites. Um, but they're also harder to keep, harder to keep warm. Um, they tend to, beekeeper's hives tend to have large entrances, so they tend to be draftier. And mo perhaps one of the things that's most important, perhaps most important, is the colonies in the wild are well insulated. Their nests are well insulated because they've got several inches of wood surrounding them. A beekeeper's hive is is usually made of planed lumber, so it's only three-quarters of an inch thick. And um, that we're learning just now that that difference in insulation changes dramatically many aspects of the bee's life, especially in the winter when, they're, when they have to keep themselves warm inside their nest all winter long. Much easier um, if, it's, if the insulation is, is high than if it's low. And yeah, these insights, of course, from studying wild bees are extremely practically important to beekeepers. You see really shockingly high die-off rates for their bees often. But also the book, one I think very valuable contribution of the book is it 
raises the question of sort of ethically why this is important too and that I don't think – I certainly hadn't and I, I imagine – most people who don't study bees full time haven't thought that you know the way that we typically keep bees in managed hives, even with the best intentions, can be extremely stressful for the bees and bad for their health, whether it be because of the difference in the nest insulation, as you said, or because they're located too close together and so forth. Um, what are some of the, in addition to the lack of insulation, some of the harmful effects that tend to arise for bees from standard practices of beekeeping? Probably the other big one, biggest one, after uh, the colony um, uh, size difference being much larger with beekeepers than in the wild, is the spacing of the colonies. Mm. And beekeepers, for purely, you know, understandably practical reasons, put their hives of bees close together. Out in the wild, the colonies are widely spaced. Um, in the wild, they're about a kilometer, six-tenths of a mile apart on average. Um, and well, why is that a difference? Well, it, it means that um, it's when the colonies are close together, there is much easier for one colony to rob out or to attack another colony. If one colony is weak, it will uh, other colonies will find it easily and and attack it and uh, make life difficult for that mm -hmm. weak colony. Um, even more importantly, the bees will spread diseases. Uh, Diseases are spread by the bees much more easily in in an apiary than they are in a forest. Now, for example, we've actually we've looked at this, um, and if we put did an experiment where we put um, twelve colonies in a row in an apiary situation where there was one meter between them, and then nearby, same same area, um, we we put another twelve colonies, but we just and we didn't. Um, put the spacing up at a um, thousand meters. We just put it up to um, fifty to one hundred meters, and then we looked at the mixing of bees from different colonies. The the drones, the males especially, mixed it almost um, uniformly among the colonies in the apiary. There was just tremendous mixing and, and errors of orientation uh, coming home on their part. But when the colonies were just a, maybe uh, fifty meters apart, there was none of that, and and. Uh, um, so I think you can see that if one colony gets sick in in an apiary, that it's very easy for bees to carry that, uh, have inadvertently carry that disease to to neighboring colonies, neighboring hives. And in the book, you propose a new approach that you call Darwinian beekeeping that would remedy some of these ills for the bees. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how it came to you? I, yes, it's um, it's it's. I use the term Darwinian beekeeping, and I'm following and paralleling a, 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 another uh, similar situation in Darwinian medicine, where the view is that you look at an organism in Darwinian medicine, it's humans, and Darwinian beekeeping, it's honeybees. Um, in both cases, what you do is you say, well, what what is the how do these bees live in or, or humans live in the wild, and how does that affect our their disease their their uh, their uh, medical situations, and when you when you look at when you take that perspective, you say, "Oh, okay, I can see that for the bees, for example, they they're crowded together and they're in these big colonies and they don't have well insulated nests. No wonder they're having some health tr problems. Why why they're having physiological stresses? Same way with humans. You, you see, people are eating richer diets than they than they did ancestrally, etc." And again, no wonder we're having health problems. So in the case of the bees, what this means is it it gives us 
now that we know how bees actually live in nature, and thus we know the conditions under which they're evolved to, to maintain their health, it gives us a guide in how we can ro- adjust our beekeeping to make life better for the bees. It comes at, certainly it comes at a cost, some costs to the beekeeper. It's very convenient to put your hives close together in, in a bee yard. And certainly it's, you get much more honey if you put them in a big hive. But at the same time, yeah, life is tougher for the bees and the, and the, and as beekeepers uh, are especially now experiencing, the mortality rates of the colonies are very high. In the wild, whereas the beekeepers, even the very best ones, are still experiencing maybe f- approximately 40% mortality each year. Out in, out in the wild, it's only, it's only 20%. So that, and for many hobby beekeepers, it's like 100% mortality. <laughs> so it's, it, there's a big, there, uh, the bees live in the wild, um, clearly with much greater health. And that's, and so I, basically Darwinian beekeeping is, uh, um, looks at 21 ways in which bees live differently in nature than in uh, beekeepers' hives and suggests ways that we can make adjustments accordingly to bring those, those two things closer together. My family keeps bees. We're of the uh, – luckily, they didn't all die, but of the amateur beekeeping variety that you just mentioned. And so reading the book was very, very interesting for me just from a, uh, an amateur perspective in that regard in that immediately I was looking at those suggestions that you had and thinking, oh, boy, you know, we need to space the hives as widely as possible on the property and need to give them way more insulation. These bees are in Minnesota, so they really, really need it. Um, and uh, position yeah. the hives high off the ground and so forth. So the book is, in addition to being really intellectually just fascinating and an exploration of both the history and how these bees live, extremely practically useful, I think, for for hobby beekeepers, but really for it should be useful for commercial beekeepers, I think, alike. It was interesting. At one point in the book, you talk about one of the most impressive and really mind-boggling examples of beekeeping pollination services in California, where some 1.5 million colonies are trucked across the state to almond groves in the Central Valley, then trucked to other groves, you know, after that season is over and so forth. And this massive, for the bees, you know, very disruptive and perhaps inhumane huge migration put forth and that these are some of the colonies that are seeing these really, really high die-off rates, even though the bees are so crucial to world agriculture and to the economy. So it seems like there'd be a lot to learn, even at a commercial level, from from the strategies you put forward in this book. Yeah. It's my understanding that for the beekeepers that are doing this migratory transcontinental um, transport of colonies out to the almond Orchards in California, they they their mortality rate is about fifty percent. Those colonies are not in good shape when they come out of the almond orchards because they've all mixed together and there's diseases everywhere. And the and the almond is not a great it's not a great food source. It's a monoculture area, so they don't have a very um, balanced or rich diet. Um, so yes, that's that is the extreme, and that that um, that is. Beekeepers have adopted that because it's extremely profitable. The, the pollination fees for bringing colonies to the almonds are, are quite high. Um, and I do want to stress at this point, though, that applying this Darwinian beekeeping is, well, first of all, this whole idea of Darwinian beekeeping is a work in progress. There are many parts of it that we still need to figure out 
how important they are, in other words, how much health impact does the deviation from nature have, and how do we remedy that? How can we best remedy that? For example, just solving the problem of improving the insulation. Um, there's probably better ways to do that than others, and, and a lot of beekeepers are working on that now. But the main thing I want to stress is that it's it's probably com- impractical for the commercial-scale beekeeping, where a beekeeper has thousands and thousands of hives, but it's probably perfectly practical for beekeepers that are small-scale, hobby beekeepers. And that's where the interest in this is um, probably going to be most important, um, partly because there are many, many more hobby beekeepers than there are commercial beekeepers, and because for the hobby beekeeper, the scale is small enough that these ideas really can be implemented more um, uh, more effectively. Mm. And the, the honeybee, as you write in the book, is really a fascinating example of an animal that humans have had, not just, you say, in addition to E.O. Wilson's quote about bees being perhaps our greatest friend, that they're also our oldest friend. And that now, of course, they share, you write, with dairy cows and with dogs and with other animals, the fate of being economically important animals to humans um, that we've tried to manipulate in different ways to boost their productivity. Yet unlike with cows or with dogs, you write that we haven't succeeded in fully domesticating bees in quite the same way. So you see them as a Mm. semi-domesticated species. Can you explain what you mean by that and and the ways in which bees have sort of evaded our complete domestication? Yes, I'll I'll explain first why I call them semi-domesticated. Domestication, a full domestication of an animal involves being able to um, alter its genetics as well as its living conditions. And you see that with cows, you know, breeding of cows or sheep, whatever. They're they're bred and they're also managed in in their housing and so their feed and so forth. With honeybees, we can manage their housing and we can manage their feed by taking them to different places to to forage. But we have not been had a heavy hand in um, in their breeding, in their genetics. We're getting more and more we're uh, able to do that, but historically. That's been very difficult. Whereas breeding, you know, uh, dogs and uh, sheep and so forth, that goes back ten thousand years, or if not more. And but with honeybees, it's just quite recently that people have gotten this cool this tool called instrumental insemination, where the bee breeder can determine which male's sperm is used to inseminate a queen. Um, that was developed in the 1940s. It's still not widely widely used at all. Most queen bees, and this is in a sense what keeps them only semi-domesticated, the vast, vast, vast majority of queen bees fly out of the hive and they mate in the air with whatever drones they encounter. Um, and that means that the uh, we don't control those matings. Um, and that's why I call them semi-domesticated. We change their living conditions, but we not change their genetics a great deal. That said, I want to be clear on that. The bees in the wild, their genetics is somewhat different than the managed bees. People have looked recently at the genetic diversity of the bees in the wild. And for example, bees um, out in the University of Arkansas team looked at this, and they found that when they looked at the wild colonies, there were 23 different mitochondrial haplotypes. Um, That's a measure of genetic diversity in the wild bees. In the same area, the managed colonies only had seven. And why is that? It's because the the managed colonies usually have their queens from a queen breeder, 
her queen producer. And those queen producers, they make their queens from a, a few especially good queens that they buy from uh, queen breeders. And so there's a kind of genetic funneling or bottleneck in the production, in the commercial production of queens that does not exist in the natural production of queens in the wild. Hmm. And even the language we use to talk about bees, the, the, the queen, the drones, is infused with this idea of a monarchy and, and a kind of rigid hierarchy that one of your major contributions to this field and to science at large has been to kind of overturn. And I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit about how you came to realize that bees are making decisions in this very nuanced, collective, but still semi-independent way and um, what that was like for you to make that revolutionary discovery. Um. Yes, thank you for asking that question because it gets at sort of the old, the other entire half of my investigations with the bees, which have to do with their collective behaviors, particularly their collective decision making. And I think probably it wasn't. It's probably not quite fair to attribute to me the insight that the bees are making these decisions collectively. What I did, however contribute was understanding how it actually works, the details of this collective decision-making. And uh, I, I focused um, on two situations. One is where the colony has to decide how to allocate its foragers among flower patches every day, and that's a constantly changing problem. And the other one was the situation where instead of the colony has to choose a new home site. So in the first case, it's a problem of properly allocating bees among different sites. In the second one, it's choosing one site to be the new home. And um, in both cases, the the the, uh, the heart of the matter is was first describing what the pattern of of action of a group is. And I'll mention I'll just describe it in a nutshell for the house hunting process. This involves making a what's called a swarm of bees of, in my case, 4,000 bees, each bee individually labeled. And so, and then being able to video record the activities of those bees, and in particular the bees that are called the scout bees that have flown off from the swarm, looked for tree cavities or rock crevices, whatever, potential home sites, and then come, they will come back and report their discoveries by performing their waggle dances. And the beauty of it is, is these little bees do their dances right on the surface of the swarm cluster. So you can video record all of the information that's being presented and look and follow how it, the, the, the messaging um, changes over time to, uh, to see how they build their agreement. And we learned how that works, and we learned that once the agreement is reached, the bees can sense that in, uh, and can um, then initiate um, the process of acting on the decision that they've reached. So it it is um, to answer your <laughs> to answer the second part of your question. I'd say it's it's marvelous to feel like you're the first human being, and I did this with other investigators, so I can't take all the credit by any means. But I think for all of us, it, it felt it feels wonderful to to understand what the bees are doing and why they're doing it the way they do when they make these collective decisions. They've been doing it for millions of years, and and we're the first, you know, curious little apes to come along with some special tools and figure out how they do this. And it's turned out to be actually pretty practical information as well, not just fascinating, but, but useful. Yeah, and useful not just in terms of 
understanding the bees, or you talk about you know these little marvelous creatures that even thinking about the wild bees will go out and collect resin from tree injuries and paint effectively the inside of their cavities to, to create you know an antimicrobial protective layer. But also, so so inter- so it's useful in terms of understanding them, but then it's also useful. Per Lindsay's question and your your previous book, Honeybee Democracy, um, which to my delight I found in the Yale Law School Library, categorized <laughs> under democracy, um, That's great. and very appropriately so because it turns out that then and and you've given wonderful talks and and written about this in the past. There are all sorts of lessons for human society then that we could draw about how to make good effective decisions as groups, taking into account individual interests and mutual respect and minimizing the influence of leaders and so forth that are really very very helpful. Yeah, they're particularly the bees provide us with a good example of how to conduct a democratic decision-making process, and but it and it works really well in situations where humans feel like they're all in the same boat together, and their interests are aligned. They might be where an aircraft is crashed and they have to figure out how to get out of the jungle or whatever. Um, or there might be in a town, you know, something less dangerous. It might be in a town meeting where they all have to figure out, okay, we've got, we've got so many roads we need to repair. Which, what's, what are, how are we going to figure out which one's this year and which one's next year? That sort of thing. Um, or in a, even in a university, uh, in a department, a university department where everybody agrees they want to hire the best person for, for a new professorship, for example. Um, yeah, the bees give us a good set of good set of um, sort of rules or uh, techniques to to make to pool the knowledge of all of the individuals and then s- and use it most effectively. It is amazing too, given how in the history of of linguistics and in thinking about what makes the human sign system unique, such a premium has been placed on what linguists call displacement, so the ability to talk about something that's not in someone's immediate vicinity. And it's extraordinary that these beings who are so remote from us in some ways on the evolutionary tree do this in their communication system. Yeah, it's a really important point you make. There's, it is, I believe it is just human beings and honeybees that have the ability um, whereby one individual can tell another individual about where to go to get something that's really good. Now, other animals can do it, but it usually involves either the animal leading a member of the group over to the to that desirable location or, or leaving some kind of trail, a chemical trail, for example. In, but we humans and honeybees can do it abstractly <clears throat> by giving the information in the case of the bees about the right distance and the right direction to go. Um, and in both cases, it is, uh, it's a marvelous ability. I mean, it's, it's stunning that we humans can do it <laughs> with our sophistication, and the honeybees are also, I think, just, I mean, they, they're unique. They stand, they stand alone. Why, you mentioned, um, you know, how marvelous it is and, and just awe-inducing to be the first person to discover things about how bees live what is it about the wild bees in particular that attracts you? Great question. For me, I think the fundamental attraction of the wild, <clears throat> excuse me, I think for me the fundamental attraction of studying the wild bees is that they reveal to us what we have been undoing 
for thousands of years with our beekeeping. And I use that word undoing because I'm, I'm borrowing a, a wording from Wendell Berry. I'm going to read you a little quote from him. He's uh, from a 1987 essay he wrote called, titled, well, called Preserving Wildness. He wrote, we've never known what we were doing, and he's actually referring to agriculture in general here. We have never known what we were doing because we have never known what we were undoing. We cannot know what we are doing until we know what nature would be doing if we were doing nothing. And as a beekeeper, I was all, for decades, I was in that situation of not, know, not knowing what we were undoing. I could see that it worked pretty well and it was fascinating, but I also could see that, hmm, this is really a great way to spread diseases and things like that. And it is kind of ripping off the bees, stealing their honey and so forth. But I didn't fully appreciate just how much myself as a beekeeper was undoing the natural world of the bees until I went out and, and looked at how they're living in the wild. Hmm. That's such a profound quote. It is, isn't it? I, it really is. Yeah, And it's... Uh, I really admire Wendell Berry for um, expressing it so clearly and so effectively. Well, to close, we like to ask our, ask our guests for any particular books or films that have had a profound impact on how you think about the world and specifically about animals and the human-animal divide. We were curious if any came hmm. to mind. Yeah, uh, a couple come to mind. And, and the thing that has always been important to me or makes a book work really well for me is if it's first if if it's written by a scientist but it's first person narrative so you know that you're not getting you're getting the real goods you know firsthand <laughs> you're like you're right there with them mm-hmm. and I, i'd like to suggest a, a couple or several one is jane goodall's classic book in the shadow of man i mean she was the first person to go out and really look at how chimpanzees live in the wild. So she was a model for me, um, her book, In the Shadow of Man. Another couple of really wonderful books in the same sort, first-person description of how a person went in the wild to solve a particular problem, and they are Bernd Heinrich's books. One's called Ravens in Winter, and another's called Bumblebee Economics. Those are two marvelous um, presentations by the scientist of what it is like and what and how difficult what it's actually like to work in the field and to start with a mystery and step by step solve that mystery through observations and sometimes experiments and then there's two more I, tom eisner's book for love of insects is wonderful each chapter is a is a is a story of invest personal investigation and then coming back back to the um, primates is a book by George Schaller called "The Year of the Gorilla." It's it's when he and his wife went up into the up into the mountains of Uganda and did some of the very first studies of just seeing how gorillas live in the wild. So those are those are those are my recommendations. It's and I really appreciate book. you asking that question. I think it's a super important uh, important point. To, yeah, and that's uh, a fascinating answer too, because I think people often forget, don't even think necessarily of bees. And insects in general really as animals in the same way as <laughs> – truly in the same way as you know, yeah. zebras or gorillas or apes or certainly humans. And then to recognize that similarity and to realize that the leading scientists clearly recognize it in both directions too is really a very special thing. Yeah. The, the bees have a much more richer behavior than, than, uh, than, than the uh, 
than the primates. Primates live in families. Well, their families are small, and they're, they're very aware of each other. I suppose that's uh, different from the bees. Bees live in these huge families where they really do all sorts of fancy things, like sh- share lots of information about food. They build a complicated nest. They keep it warm. They have to fight diseases. Uh, yeah, it's it, they're very different, very different worlds. The the world of an insect family and a and a primate family, but they're both fascinating and. Yeah, both are, both are worthy of our admiration and, and investigation. Mm-hmm. You have this great quote, uh, which you include in the book as well by Charles Darwin, which is, he must be a dull man who can examine the exquisite structure of a comb so beautifully <laughs> adapted to its end without enthusiastic admiration. And I think yes. that's very true of reading this book too, that you've got to be a dull man to read this book and not be totally enthralled and entranced um, oh, wow. by bees and to, and to catch on to your inca- contagious enthusiasm and, and love for them. Thank you very much. That's uh, that's that's um, I'll, I'll keep. That's wonderful to hear. I'm I'm delighted. It. I worked on this book for about 20 months, so it. Uh, and it, some of those days were 12 to 14 hours long of working at the writing desk. So I really appreciate that kind of feedback. I'm, very much. Thank you so much. Well, Dr. Tom Seeley, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Really. Thank you too to Ryan McAvoy at the Yale Broadcast Studio. Bert Autumn Reed at Cornell Broadcast Studio and the Yale Human Nature Lab for making this episode possible. We would love it if you would subscribe to When We Talk About Animals on Apple Podcasts, write us a review, and visit our website, whenwetalkaboutanimals.org, where you can find out more about Dr. Seeley and his magnificent new book, The Lives of Bees. Thanks for listening.